have worked on cases where attorneys are asking me to exclude information or to stretch the facts, then that really puts me in a tough spot as well. So first of all, it's unethical, but also it doesn't change the facts. So it doesn't change the fact that there might be holes in your case that uh, opposing counsel and their expert, is they're going to completely exploit. So if I'm coming and saying something that's just not true or just not factual or I'm ignoring big facts, the other side is going to highlight that. Welcome to Civil Action, the podcast of Cabotec LLP. I'm Brian Cabotec. I'm the founding member and managing partner of the firm. I'm also a past president of the Consumer Attorneys of California, a former president of the Los Angeles County Bar. I'm heavily involved at Loyola Law School, chairman of the board of directors of the schools, and I've been involved in trial lawyer politics in Sacramento probably almost my entire career. And I'm Sean Kernick, and I'm one of the partners here at the law firm. My resume isn't as impressive as Brian's because I am a lot younger than him. But our podcast here, Civil Action, features important issues. We go over new legislation that's coming down, new cases that are coming out of various courts, both in California, outside of California. And sometimes we bring on guests and go over interesting topics. And sometimes we just talk about new issues in the law. Welcome back to Civil Action. Today, my co-host is actually another one of our partners, Anastasia Mazella. And we have a very exciting guest joining us, someone that's very close to Anastasia. Anastasia, do you want to introduce our guest? Sure. So today we have Dr. Dominique Kenny. She is my sister and an expert witness. So we're going to be talking to her today about important tips that attorneys and really our clients should know about dealing when they deal with expert witnesses. Let me just read a couple highlights from her accomplished CV. She's a licensed clinical psychologist, board certified in clinical neuropsychology. She's director of the neuropsychology department at Patton State Hospital, which is the largest forensic psychiatric hospital in the United States. She's co-director of the neuropsychology residency program at Patton, where she helps train future neuropsychologists, and she teaches them how to interact with the law. She's authored numerous research articles in neuropsychology and how neuropsychology can inform legal issues. She's also helped to establish quality standards in neuropsychology and cognitively informed care for the California Department of State Hospitals. Finally, she has an active private practice devoted to providing psychological and neuropsychological evaluations for personal injury cases, disability claims, and fitness for duty. That's pretty exciting. Hi, Dominique. Hi, thank you both for having me here today. What do you do? What's your day-to-day like? Well, I have been in this field for many years, and I have, at this point, I have to wear a lot of different hats. I have my, the time that I spend in my work in a hospital, in a psychiatric hospital where I'm a neuropsychologist, and then I also have all the time that I spend in my private practice. I think for today's talk, what would probably be most relevant for your listeners is my focus on my private practice. And in my private practice, I provide psychological evaluations for the court. Any case that has a mental health issue, then I'm sitting down with a plaintiff evaluating whatever psychological claims they might have. And also, given my subspecialty in neuropsychology, I take on a lot of cases where 
the plaintiff has had some sort of head injury. And so I sit down with individuals and they take a lot of my boring tests. It takes all day long. Uh, there are good sports about it. And by them performing those tests, then I have a sense of what their psychological functioning is like, what their cognitive functioning is like, and it helps everyone get a better sense of how the person is actually functioning in their day-to-day life. And is it just on the plaintiff side or the defense side as well? What other types of cases you get often brought in on? So I am always interested in working for either side. I end up doing a lot more defense work than I do plaintiff work, although I think I end up spending more time when I'm working with plaintiff attorneys. There's a budget that is always of concern for plaintiff attorneys. And so in those cases, I think time is pro- and money is best spent with me up front reviewing records for plaintiff's attorneys and giving them a lay of the land for them to just get a case started. Not every case needs an expert. And so when I'm working with plaintiff's attorneys, then I can give them a better sense. If I get those records ahead of time, I can review those records and give them a sense of whether or not they really need an attorney. I'm sorry, whether or not they really need an expert. Expert, Of course they need an attorney. Yeah. (laughs) My joke is everybody hates attorneys until they need one. So I feel you on that. (laughs) Um, Well, that's a good segue, actually, Dominique, into one of the questions that I wanted you to address, because I think this is a source of a lot of confusion, both for attorneys and clients, and it's picking the right expert for the case. Can you just briefly go over the difference between a psychologist versus a psychiatrist, a neuropsychologist versus a neurologist? Because I think a lot of people don't realize the difference, A, and B, when they need one or the other or both? That's a great question. And picking the right expert is really important. So whenever I'm working with attorneys and this question comes up, I like to explain to them that if there are any questions related to claims about psychological symptoms, mental health claims, or there are claims related to any kind of mental disorder, like somebody's developed depression or post-traumatic stress disorder, those claims need to be evaluated in an objective manner. And so psychological testing has been developed and well-researched so that we can look at the severity of those symptoms and also to determine the credibility of those symptoms. So it's a psychologist who will sit down and be able to perform that, those objective psychological tests to determine the credibility and the severity of those symptoms. So you need a psychologist in order to do that. Psychiatrists don't do psychological testing. Psychiatrists in this day and age, they prescribe medications. So if there are questions related to medications that are relevant to your case, particularly psychiatric medications, then it's important to have a psychiatrist as your expert who can speak directly to any types of medications that have been prescribed to the plaintiff, changes in medications, side effects from medications. So if there are medication questions, you really need a psychiatrist to answer those questions. But if you're looking at credibility of symptoms and severity of symptoms in an objective manner, then you need a psychologist to do psychological testing. So that's the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist. 
in terms of a neuropsychologist and a neurologist, a neuropsychologist is a clinical psychologist with a subspecialty. So they too will sit down and do objective neuropsychological testing with a plaintiff to determine the severity of an individual's cognitive complaints. And they will also perform objective testing to determine the credibility of those cognitive complaints. The other part that ends up coming out of a neuropsychological evaluation is the neuropsychologist can comment on and provide opinions on what the functional status is for that individual. So a plaintiff will often have general complaints like, you know, ever since I had this injury, this head injury, now I can't remember anything that I need to remember when I go to the grocery store. Well, a neuropsychologist can sit down and do testing to determine the credibility of that type of complaint and also to get a sense of, well, is your complaint matching what the testing really says? So a neuropsychologist can help in that sense. A neurologist, on the other hand, is really an important expert whenever there are questions related to neuroimaging, medications that are often prescribed for neurologic conditions and some general health issues. So a neuropsychologist and a neurologist often work hand in hand in cases. So whenever I'm working up a case and as a neuropsychologist, I'm always expecting there will be a neurologist that will also be on the case who can speak to whatever neuroimaging is involved in the case. That isn't always the case. This is a bit of a backup. When it's not a neuropsychology related case and I'm just working as a psychologist looking at emotional damages, there isn't always a psychiatrist that is on that case. Oftentimes, it's it's just me as the expert mm-hmm. in a case like that. But oftentimes, if there's a head injury, usually mm-hmm. there's it's me and a neurologist. We need to have you on a different podcast to talk just about the TBI and expert witness, using expert witnesses and TBIs, because I know we did a seminar on that before, we and did. it was really informative. And it could take up a whole hour of absolutely. It by there's, I mean, there are numerous textbooks on that subject. So yeah, even from a neuro, uh, even from the neuropsychology side of things. So we could talk forever and ever about that. It's important though, because I do think a lot of attorneys, when they do get a TBI case, need to know kind of how to drill down and how to evaluate whether it's a strong case or not. And experts definitely come in handy for that. So let's kind of transition because what I wanted to talk to you about today, and I think it's important, look, attorneys have a lot of their own opinions about working with experts, whether you're on the defense side or the plaintiff side, attorneys feel a certain way about experts. And, you know, I think that the attorney expert relationship is a really important one to have and to really create a relationship, but it's a two-way street. So I wanted to get an expert's perspective on how to make that attorney-client relationship better, more effective, uh, get the most bang for your buck, and make sure that the person you hired is the right fit for the case, is an ethical person whose credibility and testimony will stand up, and someone who can also work well with the client. So what would be some of the tips you have on working with an expert effectively? What would be like your very first thing that you would want an attorney to do to help facilitate your work? So after we've established that we've chosen the right expert, because that's step one, right? right? So we went over that. 
So yeah. once we've established that you've chosen the right expert, then I would say my very next step would be don't wait too long. And this kind of ties back to the issue of choosing the right expert. I know that attorneys have tight timelines and you have a lot of cases going at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so at, sometimes attorneys will come to me and they ha you have a really tight timeline and everything is a rush. And when that happens and you're coming to me as the expert, then sometimes you don't give yourself enough time to choose the right expert. And then you don't give me enough time to review records. So my next piece of advice for attorneys in utilizing their experts more effectively is sending those records well in advance. So when I get to review those records well in advance, then I get a real sense of what other experts you might need. So I can give you a heads up on that. I also can provide you with preliminary opinions. Mm. So you have a sense of where this case might be going. And also it just gives me a good amount of time to also prepare so I know what tests and measures I'm, I'm going to want to use. That. Yeah, I was just going to ask if that helps you choose the proper tests to administer. Absolutely. So yeah, I was going to ask, this is all before even testing happens, before you're evaluating the patient or plaintiff or client. You just want to see records to start with, right? Absolutely. And you would be surprised how many times I'm getting those records just a day or two before my evaluation is scheduled. And it's tough. I also have to provide a test list. Mm -hmm. So attorneys want to know, you know, before you see my person, what, what, are you, what tests are you going to give to them? And it's hard for me to come up with a good test battery and make the most use of the plaintiff's time. I don't want to waste their time either. And I recognize that my tests can be long and seemingly burdensome because of the length. I want to be efficient as well, but it's hard for me to know what's going on if I don't have those records ahead of time. Mm -hmm. So it seems simple, but I know we all in real life, we all get rushed and we're all under a time crunch, but it is really to the benefit of the case if you get those records to your expert in plenty of time. Right. It's a valuable use of and time. It is. I'm also curious, you know, do you have a take on which records you should be getting or is the smart move on the attorney's part to be over-inclusive? Because I remember as a young lawyer, I'd kind of sometimes think when I started eventually, you know, dealing with experts and retaining them and talking to them, I'd say, well, you don't need those. You know, or I would sit there and make the make the decision as to what to send to the expert. And that's sometimes come back to bite me in the behind because trial will come around or the expert deposition will come around and the expert will get asked, well, why would you review these and not those? And then they'd say, well, I wasn't sent those records. And then they would get asked, well, isn't it a good idea to review everything? Isn't that your approach generally? And they would inevitably say yes. And then I'd be the one that kind of screwed that up. So, you know, what's your take on what you should receive or what you want to review? Well, if I don't review, I mean, you just explained my worst nightmares in depositions. So I hate being, I hate being asked that question in depo, why I didn't review a record. And it is always my standard answer that, of course, I'm going to review every record that is provided to me. And if I had known that there was another record out there, of course, I would have reviewed it. And then, yes. That record, uh, you know, might change my opinion if there's something really important in it. So at the end of yeah. the day, 
I think send your expert everything. Your expert will then prioritize how much time they spend on particular records. They'll know what's relevant. But it is the safe bet for you and for your expert, uh, especially once your expert's being deposed. Yeah, that's good to hear because whenever I've been in that situation, I sort of cringe. So it's interesting to hear that the expert doesn't like that either. They, they don't like being in that position. Even if it's not a record that would something innocuous that wouldn't change your opinion, I think that dialogue or that reality that the expert didn't get to review it just doesn't look good. I, I think right. it just it doesn't, doesn't look, look good. good. Yeah. Well, I and think it's, it's not the expert's fault. It's the lawyer's fault in that scenario. Just kind of one last thing on the records. Like you mentioned, Dominique, and this is just a hard fact. Experts are expensive. Yes. And sometimes you have a lot of medical records. Maybe if it's even a minor um, plaintiff, then you also have school records and how maybe that injury, especially a traumatic brain injury, affected their scholastic performance. So there's a lot. And I do think that attorneys, particularly maybe contingency attorneys or on the plaintiff side, want to do that edit themselves so that the expert isn't spending, you know, hours and hours and hours reviewing records that the attorney thinks might not be relevant. But I think that's an important point that both you and Sean made. It's not about what the attorney thinks is relevant because that can come back to bite you um, in depot. And I think good experts, they, they'll be mindful of that, right? And kind of just know, like you said, prioritize the ones that are require more of your review. Right. And that goes, again, to discussing the importance of getting the records early, because I know some attorneys are mindful of the budget. And so they're doing that edit for me. And as I'm reviewing the record ahead of time, then I'll realize you didn't send me what I need. Mm -hmm. And then I have the time to tell them, no, you've got to send me these other records. Where are these other records? Because again, if once I'm being deposed, if I haven't gotten everything, I don't know what I don't know. And a really savvy uh, attorney, you know, opposing counsel attorney will really go to town on me for not having reviewed everything. And then you guys are great at placing doubt in my own head that there's this magical (laughs) record out there that I didn't get to review. Right, right. It might not exist, but you don't know. I don't know. Right. So a lot of the initial contact, you know, with an expert and a case is between the attorney and the expert. So what sorts of tips do you have or attorneys on how to make the most of that initial meeting? So in that initial meeting, when I think to some of the attorneys that I have really great relationships with, there are some overlapping factors that we have in, in those early meetings. So first of all, they've sent me the records early. I'm able to provide them with some quick preliminary opinions. I always appreciate it in those really early meetings if an attorney is giving me a lay of the land of what this case is about and where it and where they see it going. So I think sometimes attorneys will talk to their expert specifically about what little piece of the case your expert is being asked about. So then we don't get a good bird's eye view of everything else that's happening in the case and where the case is going. Mm-hmm. And you might feel like that's not relevant information for the expert, but it does give me a sense of, okay, well, is this a case that is likely to end up having an economist or having a life care planner? And so it gets my wheel spinning in some different directions if I have a nice sort of overview in that sense before we even get started, before I'm even thinking about a test list or before we're coming up with a date for my evaluation. 
It's just in that initial meeting, having a good overview of what's going on in this case and where they see it going. That's a really important tip. That is. I I can see the value in you being able to assess relatively early, oh, there's going to be an economist in this case. So you can take that into account, I think, when you're making your conclusions. And, and, And that's like a not so obvious thing. That's not so obvious to me. That's kind of something I'm learning now that an expert would want to know what other experts are involved, even if they're not a neurologist or the ones that traditionally go hand in hand. You want to know if there's a economist. So you can be mindful of certain things that an economist is going to look to you for. So yeah, that's right. not a, that's not a very obvious tip or strategy. No, it's not. Right. So there. Oh, whenever there's a life care planner on board, I know I'm going to be talking to that life care planner down the line and they're going to ask me some specific questions that I'm going to want to be prepared for. And right. it might change my test battery a little bit about mm-hmm. what tests I'm going to give if there's a life care planner on board. I might have to start doing that one <laughs> because attorneys do, sometimes they do have that in mind fairly early and sometimes they don't. But I think by the time you engage an expert, you should have a general idea of the of the types of experts you'll need. You should have your damages model and that sort of thing so that you know how to prove up the damages that you're seeking. And then on the defense side, you want to know what the defense attorneys are going to need in terms of rebuttal witnesses. So super important. Let's talk about reports. Sometimes not going to say who, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to admit to anything, but sometimes you get a report and then you have mediation and you haven't spent a whole lot of time reading that report, or maybe you don't, you've waited too long to engage the expert and you get it before you've had a chance to do your mediation brief or some kind of poor planning like that. So do you have any tips for how to handle a report, an expert report? Well, depending on the expert, those expert reports are long. And I can appreciate not wanting to read through all of that report. My recommendation for an attorney, so this is how I like to practice, is after I produce the report, then having a follow-up meeting with an attorney so that I can hit the highlights. I know you guys are busy and my reports are long, so I then like to have that follow-up meeting so that I can be brief so that I can hit the highlights and then that gives you a chance to ask me any additional clarifying questions that you might have. And again, I know that everyone's mindful about a budget. And so that's another half hour that that person might be billing for, but it might also save you some time. And on the back end of pouring through a report and trying to figure out for yourself in a 30 page report, what's most relevant for your expert. Right. I do think it's important to read that report early. And I sometimes feel like I'm bugging an expert if I have to call and ask too many questions, sometimes the same question more than once you'll hear the answer from the expert and it's explained so well. And then you go to read the report again, or maybe you have to do a motion or a brief that's dependent on that report. And then suddenly, wait, what does that mean again? I'm not sure I really understand that. So you're not bothered when we ask you the same thing more than once, right? I'm not. It, okay. it ends up being a good exercise for me because if you have to keep asking me the same question, then I'm probably not explaining myself well. And in times where that has happened, I realized that I'm using a lot of jargon. Mm -hmm. So I'm writing my report, you know, for the neuropsychologist on the other side to read. And so there's just jargon in there that and somebody who's not a neuropsychologist or not a psychologist is going to understand. And, you know, that happens for all of us as professionals. Mm -hmm. We all have our terms of art. 
And so if I have an attorney asking me, hey, can you explain this again? Then I'm more mindful of, oh, wait a second. I'm using jargon here. Let me say this plainly and clearly so that you understand and so that the court understands. So absolutely. So I don't mind at all. It's a good reminder for me that, oh, I need to do better. Right. And for our clients. It's like practice, I feel like, for your deposition, even though, you know, your own attorney that hired you isn't going to be grilling you or cross-examining you, at least you're becoming maybe better versed in how to answer or how to talk about this report or your findings or your opinions in preparation for a deposition or trial testimony. And it's also really helpful if you have a complex case for those of us who are plaintiff's attorneys to be able to explain it to your clients who for the most part, attorneys or doctors or neuropsychologists. And you have to explain these things in layman's terms. And it's not always maybe what they want to hear. So, you know, to be able to break it down to them and really explain it well results from having that good attorney expert relationship so that the attorney really understands what it's about and how to break it down in layperson's terms. Where I think it's helpful is one of the things that I always struggle with when working with experts and medical jargon or medical records is if I'm preparing a mediation brief or some type of something that's being presented to the court, if I try to distill the important information from the expert report or the expert's opinions myself, I feel like it almost always ends up getting maybe lost in translation or diluted a little bit. I'm combing through a lengthy report and looking for which soundbite here can I copy paste into the mediation brief to impress upon the mediator or the other side how difficult this plaintiff's life is. Whereas Dominique is right. Like you pick up the phone, you call the expert, and you go, well, what are some of the things I should highlight from this? And they'll tell you in their own words, and then you can put that into your brief and have that as your explanation instead of copying a paragraph long piece of medical jargon, which is probably very valid and makes sense to another medical professional, but might get lost when you're trying to interpret it for a judge or the other side's lawyers. And I would say as an expert, I would rather have that phone conversation where I can explain myself. Like you mentioned, Sean, I can practice, you know, providing my opinion in in a verbal format. Um, I prefer that to when I have attorneys who will then send me their motions to then reread before they file something. And so, and that happens all the time and I don't mind doing it, but it's quicker for me because a lot of times if I'm having these after evaluation kinds of phone calls, I'm trying to squeeze in these phone calls in between seeing other patients and working up other cases. And so it's actually quicker for me to just get on the phone with an attorney and Mm -hmm. say, okay, let's, what questions do you have? Let, Let me make sure that you're hitting the highlights here. And that's quicker than you sending me a motion to reread before you then file it. And I always feel like, well, I'm not the attorney, so I don't know that I'm fully reading this properly. So I feel like having the conversation, then we're both you as the expert in the law and me as the expert in my field, we can come together and share our ideas in a manner that's just more fluid. Mm -hmm. One of the issues that comes up, I think a lot, both with clients, something they need to understand, and maybe some attorneys out there, particularly our newer generation of associates, maybe they haven't worked with experts before, it's their first big case. The function of an expert that you retain and how that person will help your case, I think it's important to know that they're supposed to be guided by the facts and not by what you're hoping they will say. So tell us a little bit about that and maybe some tips that both attorneys and clients need to implement and things they should be aware of and be mindful of as the case proceeds. 
Right. So I think that there are some attorneys, and I think there are even some experts who are misguided in their interpretation of the role of an expert. And so they think that an expert should be a team player. And a good expert is not a team player. A good expert is a truth teller. And I think that some of these experts who present themselves as team players are are seductive because they put you at ease as the attorney and they make you think that your case is maybe more rock solid than it actually is. So you want an expert who is going to just see the case from both sides, take a look at the facts in an independent manner. So that way, when you are actually going to go to mediation or a deposition, there are no surprises. So I think the attorneys that I work best with are really good at being able to tolerate hearing from me what aspects of their case are not solid. Well, I know I appreciate when experts give me that might be hard to hear, but I appreciate it because it manages expectations all the way around. You can manage your client's expectations. You can manage your own expectations about that case, either in the positive or the negative. So you're better prepared to go into mediation or deposition or trial even. And You don't want to be surprised about that at the mediation or depot or even worse, a trial. You want to know, here are your weaknesses. This is, this is where they might hit you, or this is why this argument is a reach. Uh, Dominique, I was going to ask, how do you feel about lawyers calling you and saying, well, can't you just say this or can't you leave that last part out or something? Right. Does that rub you the wrong way? It does. So at the end of the day, I, you know, I, I completely understand that it's your job to win your case, but it's my job to be a truth teller. So when I have worked on cases where attorneys are asking me to exclude information or to stretch the facts, then that really puts me in a tough spot as well. So first of all, it's unethical, but also it doesn't change the facts. So it doesn't change the fact that there might be holes in your case that uh, opposing counsel and their expert, is they're going to completely exploit. So if I'm coming and saying something that's just not true or just not factual or I'm ignoring big facts, the other side is going to highlight that. Mm -hmm. And then I just am undermined as an expert once I'm asked to give testimony or if I'm there at depot. And so then I'm just not a very effective expert for you if my credibility is then placed into question. I'm a better expert for you if I can stick to the facts and if I can tell you, hey, these are the pitfalls in your case. These are the parts of your case that are your weak spots. I can highlight the parts of your case that might be beneficial for your client. And I try to present both sides. Like these are the parts of your case that I think are going to be beneficial for your client. But these are the weaknesses. These are the potholes. And then it gives you the opportunity to think about how you want to handle it as the attorney. Oh, absolutely. So have you ever had an attorney terminate your retention or disengage after you've given them some hard truths that they didn't like what they heard? I've had some cases where I was asked to do record reviews early on mm-hmm. and it was no hard feelings from my perspective. So I reviewed the case early on and said, this is what the records already show. So I can think of a couple of different cases where individuals had already gotten psychological testing from treating psychologists and treating neuropsychologists. And 
there was testing that had been done where that clearly showed that the person was not providing their best effort and they were malingering. Mm -hmm. But then they were still getting treatment because treating doctors make money, continuing to provide treatment and ignoring the fact that they might be seeing a plaintiff who is exaggerating their impairments. Right. So I did some cases where I was just doing record reviews and I let the attorneys know this there's already evidence to show that your client is exaggerating. I expect that if I were to evaluate them, they would do right. the same thing. Right. So maybe you can go find a team player who mm -hmm. might be willing to ignore this, but I'm not your expert for you. I know that I've had cases where the experts' preliminary conclusions, or even after the, the testing, that's why you should always have a phone call first before you have your expert draft the report. But, you know, the news isn't so great. And maybe some some associates on that case might say, oh, no, should we get a second opinion? But I think before you jump to that conclusion, you have to really take a look at what your expert did and their credibility. And if you trust your expert from the get-go and you're aware of the expert's proper role in a case, then personally, I don't think you, maybe not in every situation, but generally, you don't need a second opinion. You need to take that to heart and have a come-to-Jesus kind of moment with yourself, maybe in your client. Yeah, I mean... I think that's good advice. And it also, it kind of ties back, kind of brings a full circle to one of the first things you gave us, Dominique, which is do the record review early. So that difficult conversation happens early on and you're, the lawyer's not wasting their time and their client's time pursuing a case that might not be what they think it is. It saves the lawyer's money in, in the plaintiff, in, you know, in the plaintiff situation. If the firm is advancing all the costs to pay that expert, you're not going to go down this rabbit hole and then ultimately end up in the same place where, yeah, we're back here again. There's issues. There's the same issues that you could have known about if you spent the money up front getting the records evaluated. So I, I think that's a well-taken point and kind of ties into the first thing you said, which is start early, get the records reviewed early, get these experts in early. And I think that applies across a lot of disciplines, not just in the psychiatry, psychology, neurocognitive injury world, but I think on liability experts too, engineers and things like right. that. Right. That is very true. Early experts are great at evaluating that. Even though they cost you money, right. they will save you money. Absolutely. It, it helps guide your case too, what discovery you're going to do, what your theories are. You can adjust along the way when you have good experts. That reminds me of a really good point you made the other day, Dominique, when you said attorneys are paid to talk and psychologists are paid to listen. And obviously those are our strengths, right? Those That's why we went into the disciplines that we went into. But in an attorney-expert relationship, the roles are reversed and attorneys need to learn to listen in that situation. Absolutely. So in that situation and, and also just in those phone calls, I'm always so surprised I'm not anymore, actually. I'm I'm lying when I say that. But. Nothing, nothing surprises you anymore. Yeah. <laughs> She's worked with too many attorneys to yeah. lie to herself at this point. But there are, in those meetings that I have with attorneys, there are just some attorneys who have a hard time turning it off right. and listening. You guys are great talkers. But when you're paying for that expert, then just sit in the silence and listen. You're paying for them to talk. You're not paying to hear yourself talk. So I have gotten off phone calls where I just kind of shook my head at it all and said, well, those are my billable hours. I hope they felt better after that. Right. Because the attorney talked the whole time. <laughs> um, so, so, and I get it. That's what you guys do and you guys do it really well. But when you're paying for that expert, make sure and try to be really mindful 
that they're talking more than you're talking because you're paying for them to talk. So we like talking so much. We started our own podcast so we could talk. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, attorneys have this desperate need to make sure that you know everything that they want you to know. And we're trying to get in as much information, but sometimes, you know, we want to show off and want to say, well, look at this great case and here's all the information and here's how I plan on doing it. But it's important to keep that in mind that you got to pull that back, give the expert the information that they've asked for and that they need, and then listen. Right. So I have like this one model attorney in my head that I do a lot of work with. And it's not me, by the way. It's not. (laughs) Um, He's really great about as soon as we get on the phone, there is like two minutes of pleasantries. And then he's really great at being succinct and giving me what the facts of the case are. And then he just hands it over to me. And then it's pretty much me talking the rest of the time. And we're so we've worked together on a decent number of cases. And so we're pretty efficient. I know what information he needs and he knows what information I need. So it goes really well. And again, it kind of goes back to having a good relationship with your expert. But what impressed me about him the very first time I worked with him was his ability to listen. And so it seems easy enough, but it's hard to do if your natural inclination in the world is to be a talker. And I think you wouldn't be an attorney if your natural inclination in the world wasn't to be a talker. You might be a transactional attorney. Well, these are all very good points. And I have heard a piece of advice that other lawyers, successful lawyers, successful trial lawyers and litigators always say is you got to learn how to listen. I even remember specifically with Brian being in trial and some of the first few witnesses that I've done direct examination on, oftentimes it would be someone like our client. It's not even an adverse witness. And one of the notes I remember Brian gave me during one of my first direct examinations was, listen, stop, listen. And it's good advice. So it is good for lawyers who are inclined to talk a lot to hear you tell them in the expert situation, listen. I think it's good advice in general. Lawyers need to listen better. I think well, that's we'll true. Benefit from that. that is true. One more big issue, important issue that I want to ask you about, Dominique. And honestly, this could be a whole other podcast topic, so we'll be brief, but expert depositions. I know that attorneys spend a lot of time preparing themselves to take an expert deposition, but when it comes to defending an expert deposition and preparing your expert to be deposed, what are some tips that you have that attorneys can use to get the most out of that depo prep? Well, I would say the first thing I would do is just Ask your expert to go over the opinions that are most relevant for your case. So have that meeting and let your expert know which of his or her opinions are you find will be most helpful in your case. It just gives your expert the opportunity in that conversation to, we talked, you talked about this a little bit before, Sean, is just, it gives your expert the opportunity to practice saying out loud what their opinions are going to be. So Mm -hmm. in that meeting before your depo, you want your expert practicing saying their opinions out loud. It seems simple enough, but I've been on plenty of cases where there isn't a depo prep meeting and I'm kind of flying blind. Wow, really? So you'd be surprised. So yeah, so just give your expert that opportunity to practice providing their opinions out loud. So that would be my first tip. 
next, I would also just give your expert a general overview of where the case is at that time. So you might have given them a general overview in that very first meeting, but cases change and evolve. And you've taken a lot of depots. You have a sense, too, of what the other attorney might be like. So if you can give your expert a sense of sort of that bird's eye view of the case at that time and also a heads up of what the opposing counsel Mm -hmm. is like. So I like to know if I am headed into a tough depot or whether or not all of the depots so far that have been taken have been relatively Softballs. Uh, softballs. Yeah, yeah. everybody's like, tell, tell, and, tell me your opinion. Okay, what's the basis for it? Thank you. And like, that's it. As right, opposed right. to like trying to cross examine you and like grill you on every one of them and try to negate everything you say. Absolutely. So, and that kind of falls into, I guess, my next tip is, you know, after you've given your expert a heads up about what to expect from opposing counsel, is also give your expert a pep talk. So, going as an expert, I have yet to get comfortable going into a depot because every time I go into a depot, it is like going into a boxing ring with one hand tied behind my back. I know I'm taking punches the whole time. I still think it's easier to go to trial Mm -hmm. as an expert than it is to give depot because there's no break. There's no objections. You're just taking hits the entire time. And I know attorneys are always up for a good fight, but your expert is not trained. They're not trained to fight for a living. Right. So sitting as an expert, even when I'm confident in my opinion, I still know I'm going to take hits the whole time. It's hard. It's uncomfortable. It's intimidating. So if you, in that sort of final meeting that you have before the depot, I would go ahead and just let your expert know that you're going to do great. Right. <laughs> you're right. great in there, kid. So, you know, you're not supposed to coach your expert in their opinions, but I think you do need to play coach a little bit and right. giving them a bit of a pep talk and all that kind of just ties together. And it comes naturally in those conversations after you, they've practiced giving their opinion out loud, after you've given them a bit of a heads up about what to expect from opposing counsel. I know I've had some cases where I had some legendary people taking my depot and I had more prep. I mean, the attorneys then spent, I had Mm. several prep meetings ahead of that because the attorneys knew that I was going to get it. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) So, and you shouldn't assume that just because the expert has done this, you know, hundreds of times or been to trial hundreds of times and done this for, you know, many, many years that they don't need that extra prep and pep talk. I think so. I mean, I think the more I do it, the the harder it is to go into depot each time mm-hmm. because I have a different war story every single time that I go and do it. Mm-hmm. So some depots end up being really easy, but at this point, I've learned that you can't always predict what's going to be an easy depot and what's going to really kind of rake you over the over the coals. And so I kind of go into each one ready for complete battle doesn't necessarily get easier the more I do it in a way it almost gets harder. One last question. This is, I think might be really helpful for some of the younger associates who might be going to take their first depositions of an expert. How as the attorney taking the deposition, can you be the most effective and productive in taking the deposition? Because I think that a lot of attorneys learn to do expert depositions in a particular way and they follow it 
very robotically for every single expert deposition. So any tips on that front? And then we'll call it a day. Right. So if you're taking an expert's depo, I would say don't waste time on non-case related issues. I've sat in a lot of depositions where I spend the first hour going over my credentials and then a second hour going over my bill. And I think the attorney starts to tire them. They they get tired out. Right. And then that's two hours we could have spent on my opinion. Mm Mm-hmm. And then at that point, if we're spending a long time talking about my credentials or how many clinical cases I see and what kinds of clinical cases I see um, or what my billing was on a specific date, then the longer we sit there and do that, actually, I think the more confident I get that, well, I guess you couldn't really find anything wrong with my opinion. Mm -hmm. So I actually start to get more comfortable in those in those situations because I'm like, oh, you're going to tire yourself out. That's what I've always been told. Like, don't waste your deposition time with an expert going over those things. If you have something you want to grill them on in terms of their background or billing, save that for trial. That's where, you know, why tip them off at the depot? I mean, that's that's really good advice, I think, Dominique. It's really good to hear an expert from their perspective also sharing the same advice that I've been taught and other lawyers have always said. Dive into the the subject immediately. What are your opinions? What What's your basis for those? Grill them on that if you want. Well, Dominique, thank you so much for doing this. It's been so fun to do it with you. Where can people find you online, Dominique, if they want to look you up or maybe even hire you? Well, I have a management company, so people can contact me through my management company at Arrowhead Evaluation Services. So they manage all of my cases and my casework. Great. We can put a link. Um, Yeah, we'll make sure to share that in the show notes. Thank you so much, Dominique. And thank you, Anastasia, for being our co-host today. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Thank you. Thank you. If you would like a summary of today's tips, shoot me an email at am at kbklawyers.com and I'll send you the information via email and hopefully it will help you as you move forward with your cases or with your clients. Thanks for listening to Civil Action, a podcast of Cabotec LLP. If you like what you heard today, please go online and subscribe, leave us a comment and share this podcast. You can find us on all social media platforms at Cabotec LLP. You can find our website at kbklawyers.com. Please reach out to us if you have any questions or if there's anything you want to hear us discuss on the air or if you want to come on and maybe join us and talk to us. We appreciate the feedback. We'd love to have you. Thanks very much.